Greetings, you have discovered the 542 and the Blue Podcast, discussions of law enforcement history, issues and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains. Hosted by Scott Lunsford, retired police detective sergeant, author and researcher, background music by Purple Planet. Used with permission. Episode produced and engineered by Victoria and Alice. Scott, we are recording. 3, 2, 1. Thank you, Victoria, as always, for your wonderful introduction. Today's Shade of Blue for 542 in the Blue, we're looking at an investigation that occurred in 1980 in Tennessee. Uh, sometimes when we have a major crime occur, it's not a whodunit situation. At times, offenders do get caught or stopped in the act. There are also times when the suspect admits to the crime and tells you why they did what they did and how they did it. This doesn't make an investigation any easier. Leads still have to be followed, interviews still have to be done, and an overall due diligence of the investigation needs to be completed. At the start of any investigation, even if there is a confession, an open mind is needed by investigators to make sure that all the paths are followed and whatever is found is documented and documented correctly. Even if it could possibly rule out the confession or the suspect admitting the crime as a perpetrator. People do lie to the police even when it could be something where they're admitting to doing wrong. Such is the nature of our next shade of blue. A murderer is stopped by bystanders before he could kill more. He confesses to his actions and provides a motive but this does not stop a full investigation being completed by local police, the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, or the TBI, as they're known, or the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, to get involved and gather all the information and facts in an attempt to keep the killer literally from killing again, either by a conviction for life in prison or possibly the death penalty because as I've said before no matter what your feelings on the death penalty are the only sure thing that that guarantees is if that person killed someone they're not going to kill them again if we take their life that is very sad but it is true let's go back to Sunday July 27 2008 Around 200 people were watching the youth performance at the Unitarian Universalist Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. The youth group was performing the musical Annie Jr., a play with an all-children cast of about 25. 
Of course, Annie is the musical based on the Harold Gray comic strip, Little Orphan Annie. Won the Tony Award for Best Musical, uh, the songs Tomorrow, and it's a hard lock. It's a hard knock life are among its most well-known songs. Annie Jr. is a licensed version of this script specifically edited to be performed by elementary school students and young people performers in a very shortened version. During the show, a gray-haired man with a mustache walked into the church. He was carrying a guitar case. Nonchalantly, he set the case down and calmly opened it up and removed a Remington Model 28 12-gauge shotgun and began indiscriminately firing at the audience. Caught off guard completely, of course, 60-year-old usher Greg McKennedy uh, quickly maneuvered himself between the congregation and the man with the shotgun. Standing there, he attempted to prevent more killing. And because of his selfless bravery, I'm afraid he was shot to death. Another lady in the audience, a Linda Carringer, who was watching the production, was also hit by gunfire. She died later that night at the hospital. Seven more individuals were wounded in the audience as well. The shooter was overpowered by members of the congregation and restrained until police could arrive. Uh, the shooter was stopped by church members John Beauchette, Robert Bidwell, Arthur Bolds, and Terry Houston, along with a visitor, a Mr. Jamie Parkney, who all restrained him until police arrived. Who was this man? Why would he attack a church group performing a child's play? It's a good question. The shooter was identified as 56-year-old unemployed Tennessee truck driver by the name of Jim David Atkinson. He was questioned about the killing by police, and he said that he had marked the church because of its liberalism as opposed to his own personal view. Uh, Adkins had a four-year military background that was mentioned in the media several times at the time of the trial and the time of the incident and was used in his defense at the trial later. Uh, he had been a private in the Army from 1974 to 1977 did basically a four-year hitch, three-year hitch, excuse me. A letter or manifesto was found in his vehicle after the shooting. Uh, it was more of a suicide note than anything else. It attributed his motivation for the rampage as the shooter's opinion was that the far-left liberal leaders were well-protected so he had decided to target the people who had voted them into power, and he determined that was the people that attended that church. He was also a readily fully admitted racist with a very strong hatred of African Americans and gay people. The investigation by the TBI brought up in court transcripts later also indicated he possibly had another motive. His ex-wife, had been a member there. Uh, that was wife number five. According to an affidavit by one of the officers who interviewed Addison, he had planned to keep shooting until the police arrived and killed him. Wife number five 
and Mr. Atkinson uh, had a divorce in 2000. So eight years later is when this happened. As I said, he was unemployed and said he was unable to find a job. His unemployment issues he blamed on everybody except for him. The fact that his food stamps were being cut was just one more source of anguish or aggravation for him that he contributed to the shooting and his actions. The investigation determined the shooter was very much premeditated. Atkinson had purchased a shotgun a month before the murders. He had sawed off the barrel and then bought the guitar case just two days before the attack in order to transport the sawed-off shotgun inconspicuously. Atkinson also had a belt pouch uh, with ammunition for the shotgun, he had 76 12-gauge rounds, each filled with number four shot. Evidence included Atkinson's own words from interviews with police and detectives. He called the church, quote, ultra-liberal that never met a pervert that they just didn't embrace. They just glorify those weirdos, sickos. That ain't a church, that's a cult. And then he went on to say further, I was in a marriage, like I said, his fifth marriage, by the way, and I love that woman, but she was just, I'd never been around someone that liberal in my life. Makes you wonder how they actually met and got hooked up. I, If he was so far politically in the opposite direction, that would need to be more looked at, I guess. Uh, socialized aspect of it. His wife, again, number five, was a Miss Liz Alexander. Earlier in 2000, she had to seek a protection order when Adkinson, according to the protection order, threatened to blow my brains out and then blow his brains out. Friends of the two at the time uh, reported that Adkinson was afraid of anybody or anything that was not like him or people that did not think like him. Some other comments made to investigators that were put into court records and by the investigators include, quote, I regret that I have but one life to give for my country. And, quote, I hope I start a movement. I just did what I did. See, if you'd met me in a bar or on a street, you'd say, well, that's a nice fellow. And I am, unquote. Now, on August 21st, 2008, Atkinson was arraigned on charges of murder and attempted murder, and a trial date of March 16th, 2009 was set. He remained in jail on a $1 million bond. The FBI had opened up a civil rights probe in regards to the case pretty soon after the incident had occurred. At his first court appearance, Atkinson waived his right to a preliminary hearing and requested that the case go directly to the grand jury. Atkinson was represented by a public defender by the name of Mark Stevens. 
Stevens had indicated that this move was taken to get the case to trial uh, as quickly as possible so resources would become faster available to him uh, for a mental health assessment of his client and indicating a possible insanity defense would be used by the public defender. At first, it looked like an excellent example of the use of an insanity defense, but that all changed in February of 2009, getting close to the court date. A deal was struck with prosecutors that would see Atkinson plead guilty to the two counts of murder and receive and receive a sentence of life in prison with no possibility of parole. Victims and church members wept as the prosecutor described the wounds that killed the individuals in the church. On February 9th, Adkinson pled guilty to killing two people and wounding six others. When the judge asked him to confirm his guilty plea, he said, quote, Yes, ma'am, I am guilty as charged. He told this to the to Judge Mary Beth Leibowitz before she sentenced him to life in prison without parole. A mental health expert for the state had determined that Atkinson was competent to make the plea, although public defender uh, Mr. Stevenson was prepared to argue at the trial that his client was insane at the time the crime was committed. Uh, the judge gave Atkinson a chance to address members of the congregation and the families of his victims before the sentencing actually happened. Atkinson snapped at the judge saying, no ma'am, I have nothing to say. At one point in the trial during the preliminary aspect of it, Atkinson was photographed giving the finger to the press and the people sitting behind him in the courtroom. Uh, the defendant's chair was appropriately set so that the judge could not see what he was doing until the photo was published and you can find that photograph online if you you look around some Atkinson seems to have subscribed political causes to his personal problems like his wife's attendance at the church and making that the target that represented his political views uh, it was a combination of personal grievances that he believed had political cause that contributed to his own justification for his decisions to use violence. It's not my fault, it's always somebody else's fault. Uh, we've all heard that before. One of the church members who tackled Atkinson said he didn't believe that uh, he was insane, but that he had been manipulated by anti-liberal rhetoric. Unbalanced, yes, bitter, yes, evil, yes, insane, not in our ordinary use of the word. He is quoted as saying in the papers at the time of the trial. Our defendant, suspect, killer, is now almost 70 years old. He is still in prison. He has been in prison since the shooting 11 years ago and he's currently serving his sentence in the Northeast Correctional Complex in Knoxville, Tennessee. He was found guilty of killing two individuals, 
Greg McKennedy, 60 years old, and Linda Carringer, 61 years old. Greg gave his life in an attempt to save his fellow man. Not much more can you say fine about a man than one that lays down his life or attempts to for others. So thank you for listening to this short 542 in the Blue podcast. If you'd like more information, you can check out my webpage, scottlunsfordauthor.com, where you can find information about my books and further podcast information as well, as well as some links to some interesting sites that you might uh, find interesting. I appreciate any feedback that has been coming in. Uh, right now, according to the stats, where we have listeners in 10 countries so far uh, throughout the world. And those of you that are listening, thank you very much. And I hope you get some information from this that you find interesting or entertaining, or at least maybe pause and make you think a little bit. So right now I'm going to turn the show over to my engineer, Alice, and let her close us out. And in the meantime, remember, be safe and be secure and try to do something nice for somebody next week. Alice, close us out. Five, four, three, two, one. You have been listening to the 542 in the Blue podcast. Discussions of law enforcement history, issues and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains. Hosted by Scott Lunsford. For more information on this podcast, go to scottlunsfordauthor.com. There you will find a link to the podcast website and information on Scott's books and how to order them. Scott can also be reached through the website. The strange noise you may hear in the background of this recording is the snoring of Liberty the Boston Terrier who Scott refuses to have wait outside the recording studio while he records. Background theme. Tormented by Purple Planet Music. Authorized by PurplePlanet.com. This is Alice your podcast editor and engineer. 2. 1. End.